0: Ready for BFS uplink. Go for launch. GC go. Guidance go. Fido go. Prop go. GMC? go. DPS
1: go. Inco go. PDS go. Surgeon go.
0: I got verbal confirmation from the, the uh, 45th Wing commander. We are go, and we do not need Desaros go. so I would like you to proceed. Probably that. CLS is go for auto sequence start. And we have a go for auto sequence start. Discovery's onboard computers have primary control of all the vehicle's critical functions. The sound suppression water system has been activated, protecting Discovery and the launch pad from acoustical energy waves. Go for main engine start. We have main engine start. Two, one, booster ignition, and the final liftoff of Discovery. A tribute to the dedication, hard work, and pride of America's Space Shuttle team. The shuttle has cleared the tower.
1: mission control the space shuttle now its back. They have orbit.
0: Welcome to Peer Spectrum, where we bypass the ordinary and familiar to explore the unsettled edges of medicine, where we tackle real problems in depth, where we mine the knowledge and experience spectrum of your peers through long-form conversations, not sound bites. Take us with you anytime, anywhere, and get ready to make your downtime count. Get ready for Peer Spectrum with Keith Mankin and Colin Miller. All
1: right, welcome back. The opening you just heard was actual footage of STS-133, the final launch of the space shuttle Discovery and the second-to-last launch of the U.S. Space Shuttle program. One of the astronauts aboard that day was Dr. Michael Barrett, a career astronaut, a physician by training, and today's guest on the podcast. I can't even begin to tell you how excited we were to do this interview. NASA gets literally thousands of requests every year for astronaut interviews and speaking engagements. Obviously, they can only accept so many of these. But thanks to the growing popularity of our podcast, and to all of you out there listening, we're now getting more opportunities like this to speak with some really unique and incredible people. Just put yourself in our shoes for a minute. Michael Barrett is someone who's been to space twice, lived on the International Space Station for 200 days, he's conducted two spacewalks, he's one of the world's experts in space and aviation medicine, and we got to sit down with him for over an hour and really ask him anything we wanted. It was a rare and unforgettable privilege, and we just want to thank all of you out there for helping make it possible. I think you're going to really enjoy this one, so with that said, let's get started. Mike, welcome to the show. We're just uh, super thrilled to have you today.
0: Well, thanks so much. Really glad to be here with you guys.
1: So Mike, you've got an interesting background. Obviously you're a physician like many of our listeners, but at some point, and I'm not sure when, but I'm hoping you can tell us, maybe during residency, maybe afterwards in your practice, you decided you're going to send your CV over to NASA and see what they say. So <laughs> we're just curious, how did you, how did you get onto the path of being an astronaut?
0: You know, I think one of the things that characterizes astronauts is that they had a lot of really broad interests and that probably goes for a lot of people in the space program anyway. But, uh, You know, at one time I wanted to be an astronomer and I was building telescopes. And uh, for a long time, I only wanted to be a marine biologist and uh, ended up going to medical school. I had actually gone to aviation ground school in high school. And kind of the further I got along, you know, you're looking for a place to put all those interests together into one spot. And uh, just kind of evolving interests, it just uh, dawned on me that the space program could do all of that. And so. I started gaining this interest in uh, space medicine and environmental medicine during medical school in Chicago and uh, eventually learned of an aerospace medicine residency. And I just thought, how cool would it be to, to be able to fly airplanes and, and uh, take care of people in unusual environments? And so the, the rest after that, as I say, is, is history.
1: So after that, did you end up going directly to NASA? Did you Were you in practice for a while? Were you working for the airlines? I mean, what were you doing?
0: So I completed internal medicine at uh, Northwestern University in Chicago. And uh, by that time, I pretty much had my sights on doing a second residency in aerospace medicine. And the one that I did was at uh, Wright State University in Dayton, Ohio. Now that is in close proximity to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And it also had uh, support by uh, NASA and uh, of course, by Wright State University. And, um, you know, from there you, you're learning high performance aviation, like military jets, as well as commercial and federal aviation and, and space. And, uh, as I went along, I realized that really my passion was space flight. And, uh, it was one of those things you kind of set a bar really high and you don't think you could ever jump over it, but the closer you get, the more you find that there's just normal people who have kind of the same passion you do. So I, uh, Made a couple of trips down to Johnson Space Center, and I, I finished my master's thesis as quick as I could and threw in an application and came down to uh, Houston in 1991 and basically never left.
1: So we've all seen that movie, The Right Stuff, the you know, Tom Wolf <laughs> book, uh, You know, and the training they went through. How re- Obviously, that was back for the Mercury program, but how realistic is that? I mean, what's involved with actually the selection process, first of all, and then the training?
0: Well, to be clear, I actually went down as a NASA flight surgeon, and I spent nine years down at the Johnson Space Center as sort of a doctor for the astronauts, and so it was kind of an interesting thing to get a, a perspective on uh, astronaut selection, training, care, and feeding from from that end, and so I had a pretty good idea of what I was getting into. You know, in the, uh, the early astronauts were training, there was a lot we just didn't know about space flight, and they were building rockets for the first time, and those guys were no kidding, pioneers, and you had to prepare people for things that you didn't entirely understand. So you really had to prepare uh, to the utmost as far as physical endurance and whatnot. So we've changed quite a bit in that. We understand our machines quite a bit better—not a hundred percent, but better—and uh, we've got def- definitely a much better understanding of what it's like to work in weightlessness. So the selection has changed accordingly, uh, but it's interesting when you talk to some of the older guys who are my heroes, by the way, they, they look at our selection and say, wow, I don't think I can get through that <laughs> uh, because now, you know, we're, we're not looking so much for ultra fitness as health. We, we want somebody to have a long time astronaut career. So, you know, 20 years or so. And uh, you know, to be an astronaut nowadays, working on the space station, you're going to fly six month missions, which is very different than those short uh, Apollo missions. Mm -hmm. And we're international. The station is bilingual, so everybody has to speak Russian. And uh, we're really looking for field science experience and the kinds of experience that would set you up to live in a small place with a small number of people for six months. And so uh, what we select now is quite a bit different than than what we selected before, and it serves our mission very well.
1: So you've really gone from a lot of test pilots, which was the original uh, cohort coming in, and now you have scientists, geologists, physicians like yourself— i um, still interested, though, about that selection process. I mean, it's, it's a lot to ask out of somebody to be up there for six months. And I'm not sure everybody could do it, right? And you're looking for the right kind of person, someone who's going to get along with the others up there, someone who's going to be pretty cool and thoughtful under stress. How does that part work? I mean, how do you make sure that you're getting the right kind of person to, and not someone who's going to, well, lose it up there?
0: <laughs> well... So interestingly, it's a, it's an interesting time to ask that question because we just recently went through an astronaut selection process. And as you say, not too many people would necessarily want to do that. However, when we opened the selection, 18,354 people who did want to do that responded. Oof. And so we had to sift through that number of applications. Now a huge amount of selection is done by the, the current astronauts themselves. So uh, we were incredibly involved in that. Now, our uh, HR guys actually limited that to about 12,000 applications, and I was actually in charge of the team that looked at all the biomedical science people, which, by the way, was about 2,400. Wow. So of those, uh, probably half were were medical doctors, and the other half were a smattering of life sciences, uh, virologists, microbiologists, and and whatnot. And and so um, you're looking at... A bunch of people who are highly motivated, highly trained, and you're trying to winnow that down to those that you could lock yourself in your laboratory with for six months and and get along and work and and agree on everything. Uh, when you get down to the final couple of hundred, you really have a notion that that almost all of them could do that job, and that's where it starts getting very very painful because you really want to pick them all. They're they're just remarkable people. But some of the things that we look for. Like I say, uh, you know, we we look for a certain professional expertise, uh, and certainly uh, for the medical folks, I'd like to know that they could practice medicine, but they could do it in unusual places uh, as much as possible. And the same with the scientists, we'd like to know that they had field experience in remote, austere places out of the normal person's comfort zone, if you will. And cultural experiences help us quite a bit to know someone can operate either in another language or in another culture where you you have another language between you and what you need, where people think differently. And that's really what we use to distill that group of finalists. And we will invite down a little over 100 of those. So we'll get to know them very well over a a period of about a week of fairly intensive questioning, psychological evaluation, physical evaluation. And uh, in this recent round, we winnowed that down then to about 50-something, and then we invited them down for another week of, of more of the same now you know i can tell you that after 50 something years of human spaceflight we've, we've gotten pretty good at identifying the characteristics that that help someone succeed and uh, i think we did an extremely good job with the 12 souls that we picked out of those eighteen thousand 000 plus um, you know I'm, I'm pretty sure that there's probably another hundred that would have been great as well but we're really mm-hmm. happy with the group we got
1: so, how many classes do you have? I mean, is there a class of twelve every year? Is it every few years? How often
0: no. so it it varies with the program. Uh, I was chosen in the year two thousand, and before that it was it was about every two years. There was a ninety eight and a ninety six class. Uh, it was two thousand four before we chose another class. and you you think about the programs and the events that happen. those really influence how we choose. In 2003, we lost one of our space shuttles, Columbia, and it was very unclear how long it would be before we could actually fly again and pick up the assembly of the International Space Station. Mm -hmm. But by that time, there were a lot of shuttle folks who were close to their retirement, and we knew that we needed new blood. So at a time when we weren't actually flying, we chose another class in 2004, and that that served us well. And uh, we chose another class in 2009, and then two thousand 13, and then uh, just last year. So it, it really depends on the outlook and, and how vigorous our flight schedule is.
1: So not everybody's going to get to go to space, right? I mean, there's only so many slots. Some people are alternates in case someone gets sick or injured. Um, does everyone ultimately get a shot, or what What percentage actually make it to the point where they get to, to ride the rocket go into space?
0: It's actually nowadays extremely rare that someone does not fly. Wow. We, we choose people— And we make an investment in them, which, by the way, is mental, physical, and monetary. It's very expensive to train an astronaut, and we don't do that lightly. So we we choose enough, not a surplus, not a huge surplus, because it is so expensive and intensive to train. And uh, that is our hope, that everybody will fly. And that really works for us. You know, When we choose someone, we commit, and we're going to work really, really hard to get them to flight readiness, and the more people we have with uh, flight experience, the, the more helping hands we have to, to help our whole uh, human spaceflight effort. So we really want to distribute that experience around.
1: So before we get off into space, and we're pretty excited about it, just yeah. to understand a flight surgeon, we've had a flight surgeon on, but um, he was from the Air Force. Mm-hmm. And I'm assuming a lot of your duties had to do with assessing flight readiness, right? Uh, you know the health Absolutely. Of, so that was your job basically for the... Uh, nine years before you were selected. Um, was research part of that? I mean, what were you doing before 2000?
0: So as a flight surgeon, you, you actually traverse a lot of worlds. And by the way, we have a fleet of um, supersonic training jets that our astronauts use for, for uh, flight readiness training. And so as a flight surgeon, you sort of live in two of those worlds, very similar to an Air Force flight doc who's got a squadron, of, uh, of high-performance jets, you know, our our astronaut pilots fly those as well as spacecraft. So uh, it, it really helps us. As, as flight surgeons, we fly with those crew members, uh, typically in their back seat. And, you know, for a while, your life is in their hands. And, and for a lot of the while, their career is in your hands as a flight doc. And that's a very <laughs> sacred relationship that we develop. Uh, and, you know, we, we try not to fear each other the best we can and help each other the best <laughs> we can. Um, but, uh, you know, you, you dabble in, uh, in different, uh, things as well. So some of the flight surgeons actually do research and it's mostly based on the operational medical data that we get, what happens to astronauts in space and what do we do to make that better the best we can. So instead of the pure science it's very applied, it's, it's looking at the bone and the muscle loss and how deconditioned we are when we get back and, and medically, how do we best care for people? So. You know, an astronaut's uh, physician is at the cutting edge of those observations and and really can help guide a lot of that research. We also interface uh, as flight docs with the research community, uh, looking at the pure science that that we do. And that's also a very interesting but extremely vital relationship that the flight docs have. And uh, in in my case, you know, we were just starting to work with our Russian colleagues during the early shuttle Mir program, where we started flying cosmonauts on the shuttle and U.S. astronauts on the Mir station. And uh, that is really what led us to the path of the International Space Station that we have now. So mm-hmm. added to the operational medical support and the research, we've had a very large um, input of cultural, cross-cultural understanding. And uh, that's been a really interesting part of the flight doc's uh, duties nowadays.
2: Interesting. So, Michael, um, again, before we get up to space, are there certain aspects of medicine that you learn in preparation for these missions that, say, the typical land-based internal medicine doctor or even another flight surgeon wouldn't learn?
0: Well, sure. Um, First of all, we have a variety of specialties in our flight docs. Everybody is boarded in aerospace medicine, but you typically have another clinical specialty first. I was internal medicine. And I did that deliberately to learn pathophysiology well. Uh, most mm-hmm. of our flight docs actually have emergency medicine backgrounds, which serves them very well in the field when we're doing launch and landing support. Sure. Uh, but, but we've had quite a diversity. We've got some family practice folks, and, and our, our big chief, when I uh, first came here, was Obi-Gyne and aerospace. Uh, and he's probably the world expert on on female issues in, in human spaceflight. flight. And, and so mm-hmm. it, I, that diversity makes us stronger. Uh, but everybody has the common knowledge base of aerospace medicine and what we've learned over the years of what happens to people, what's needed uh, for astronauts to protect them from the acceleration loads and the weightless environment and then repatriating back to earth, which is quite a formidable task after a long time in weightlessness. So those are the basic things that, that a flight surgeon must know uh, to care for a crew to prep them for flight and to take care of them in flight.
1: Mm -hmm. All right. It's time to jump into space here, Mike. And, when i looking at your background, it's interesting. I think you actually went up on the Soyuz first and then on the shuttle. Is that correct?
0: That is correct.
1: So you've done them both. Um, let's look at that first time when you were going up. I mean, first of all, because we talk about medical stuff here, what is the final physical that you have to go through? What, are the, what is the other flight surgeon looking at? What are they trying to screen you for? And what what do you pass with, I mean, to be ready to actually go up?
0: Well, it's a great question. We have a sequence of exams. There's an annual exam, which is pretty thorough. And then there are certain tests that are done uh, with relation to your launch day. And so launch for us is L and L minus six months means six months before you launch, you will have certain studies. And it's a pretty complicated matrix, but some of those include uh, uh, dual x-ray absorptiometry, looking at bone density, Everybody will have a baseline before they fly, so we see how much bone they lose. There'll be uh, strength testing, typically isokinetic strength testing and endurance testing. Uh, there'll be various other aspects of fitness evaluation, including aerobic capacity. We'll measure a VO2 max on everybody so that we can track that in flight and see how much they gain or lose. Uh, and then uh, besides fitness, we're just looking at medical screening tests, so your your basic SMAC-20 and we'll do imagery of some of the areas that we're a little bit concerned about with regard to background issues. So for, uh, for women, you're looking for cysts. For men, you're looking at the appendix. You're looking at um, typically neck vessels as well. And a new era for us is because we've discovered this new weightlessness-induced change in our neuro-ophthalmic system, Everybody gets 3T MRI nowadays to image the neuroophthalmic tract looking at dimensions that we know change in flight with the optic nerve and and the globe itself. And so all of those things happen at their specific intervals before flight. And the final really big clearance physical happens at about 45 days before flight. And along with those exams that you get to clear you healthy enough for spaceflight, uh, there's also science experiments that you may be participating in as a human subject, and so you'll get your last, what we we'll call baseline data collection during that point. Uh, but then you'll also meet with a flight surgeon about three days before you fly, get a very cursory exam, make sure nothing has changed, and uh, and then you're off to the races.
1: So that last one would a cold be okay, but a flu not? I mean, what are they? What, what would they let you go up with?
0: Well, any infectious disease, you don't want to get anywhere near a rocket. So we actually quarantine our crew members for about two weeks before they fly.
2: Wow. So Hmm.
0: it's an interesting question. We found out in the Apollo era that uh, you really need to control for infectious disease before you fly. Uh, And it's actually been a fairly rigorous and, for the most part, successful program, so that everybody who actually comes in contact with the crew also has to be examined, and uh, cleared by a physician and so we and we keep that quarantine pretty strict now it, it hasn't been foolproof one of the visiting shuttles on my mission actually inadvertently brought us a respiratory virus it would have been a minor cold on the ground but let me tell you it's it's quite formidable to be congested in zero gravity <laughs> mm-hmm. there's no gravity assisted drainage and uh, there's nowhere to go yeah
2: so, uh, uh, yeah we were talking about that the the things we take for granted like uh, clearing your throat or throwing up or, or uh, blowing your nose. That's much harder up in space, isn't it?
0: Well, some things are harder. Some things are easier. Um, <laughs> you know, we when uh, we had our little respiratory epidemic going on up there, uh, there's no gravity except what you induce artificially. And you can actually swing an arc in a bag, for instance, and make give it a little bit of artificial gravity for an arc of maybe 120 degrees. And You know, that that keeps the screws in the bottom of the bag long enough for you to pick one out and then close the bag before they all fly out you. Uh, And so imagine if you're congested, uh, I found a way to uh, rapidly approach a handrail with my arms out and slingshot around that that handrail, uh, which gave me a bit of a moment arm between the contact point of my hands on the rail and my head. And just that little bit actually helped quite a bit. So, you know, you, you find ways to, to help yourself up there that, you know, you wouldn't think about until you're up there.
2: Did
1: That's they call great. that the Barrett Maneuver now? or?
0: I sure hope not, because it, it was not pretty. <laughs> no, uh, I bet not. But it was effective. <laughs> All right. So
1: take us to the, you're in quarantine and it's the night before. I mean, you've done a lot of training. You've gone in the vomit comet. You've been in the giant scuba tank. You've done just an unbelievable amount of, of training and preparation for this, but What's going through your mind there? I mean, it's still got to be incredibly exciting, too.
0: Well, you know, I got to admit, after all that time, and I, I was not a young puppy. You know, I was 49, and I actually turned 50 during my flight. It was the best birthday ever. But, uh, yeah. you know, by, by that time, years of high-performance jet training and scuba training, uh, spacewalk training, I, I found myself remarkably calm, much more so than, than I would have thought. Uh, the, the biggest worry I had was, you know, I have a wife and five children, and, uh, you know, how are they going to do during all of this nonsense? Um, but but in general, I, I think I remember feeling very ready. I had an incredibly good commander, Gennady Padalka. Uh We were, of course, in Russia, in Kazakhstan, actually, at the compound there. And, and I knew everybody in the medical community who was working with us. I They'd been my colleagues for years. And uh, it, it just seemed uh, very natural and, and very right. I slept well. Uh, that night before launching and, um, uh, we got up and everything worked out exactly like I had seen before many times after following crews through the launch. Uh, and by that time you're very task focused, you kind of going through your, in your mind, what your duties are, what your procedures are, what you have to monitor. And that's, that's really where most of your mental energy is by that time.
1: So during the takeoff and then, um, uh, the, the attachment to the st- space station. I mean, how much of a role do you play in that? Um, is, there, is there any navigation component from your standpoint? Is it the your crew members doing that?
0: Well, it's always uh, spaceship dependent, and this was the Soyuz, and at the time we were doing a two-day chase. So from the time we launched to the time we docked was nearly 48 hours, and I actually flew as a uh, flight engineer, a left-seater as we call it. It was kind of like a co-pilot. So I was very fortunate. I got to train on all the manual modes of the Soyuz, and I, I actually was was fully qualified to fly that thing manually. And it's, a, um, for the most part, an automated docking and rendezvous system that's uh, radar-guided, and it, it works great, except when it doesn't work, and for <laughs> us it didn't work. Uh, we had a glitch about 150 meters out or so, and we had to bring it in manually, which Gennady absolutely loved, because every pilot wants to fly manually. <laughs> uh, and the Soyuz is just a tremendous spaceship to fly. It's, it's actually quite easy to fly, to be very honest. Um, so uh, we brought it in manually. He had the, the stick duties, and I had antennas and docking system to, to manage um, and it, it just worked absolutely as planned. I mean, it was like being in the simulator when the instructor fails one thing and everything else works. So it was a little bit of an exciting entry but uh, an arrival, but, uh, man, it was just great.
1: <laughs> Unbelievable. So you, you're docked with the space station at this point, and you, I, I guess there's a pressure equalization, then you open the hatch. I mean, what's that first moment like when you're greeting the crew members who were there? Some of whom are coming home.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, you you nailed it in that uh, you you don't just uh, dock and open the door. Uh, whatever Sandra Bullock did aside, <laughs> uh, you you dock. It takes a while to drive latches and hooks, and then it takes uh, maybe an hour and a half of leak checking to be sure you haven't uh, put a hole in the ship at all, and that your seals are going to be good. And then you open the door. But you know, it's a small community, as you might gather, and uh, we all know each other really well. So it was it was great to see friends and. You know, there's there's a couple of seminal moments for I think every astronaut during their first flight. One is when you first arrive in orbit after that eight and a half minute ride, and all of a sudden you're weightless. You got that head rush. Uh, you have duties to make sure that your ship is in good shape, and you're looking at the Earth for the first time. And all that happens mm-hmm. at once. And wow. it's similar when when you dock. Uh, you know, all of a sudden you're you're going from this little tiny spaceship to this massive home, <laughs> the the space station. And you're seeing people that you haven't seen for a long time, but you've trained with and you know really well. And you know these are some of your best and closest and most trusted friends. Uh, and you know you're just starting out a, a tremendous experience. I mean, so all of those things kind of come to a head at one time. So I mean, that's what I remember: opening the hatch and uh, seeing my uh, my very good friend uh, Colonel Mike Fink, uh, U.S. astronaut, and uh, Yuri Lonchikov, a Russian cosmonaut, and uh, one of my closest friends, Koichi Wakata. Uh, who's a Japanese astronaut. So yeah, I mean, it was, it was like a reunion.
1: So with the language you speak Russian, is Russian the main language there? Does everybody speak? I mean, cause if you have a Japanese, you have somebody from um European space agency, what's the common language there?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. So it is a bilingual station. Everybody must be proficient in English and Russian. And, uh, you know, if you're, American or Russian, then you know you got your own problems. You got to speak the other person's language. If you're Japanese, you got double trouble because you got to speak both English and Russian. And that's again part of our world. I think it kind of helps and brings us together. If you were to ask what's the main language, I'd have to say it's kind of a space jargon. It's we say (laughs) ruslish or something similar to that. But sometimes you'd start a sentence in one in Russian and end it in English, whatever is easiest to express a thought. And I would say there's a healthy smattering of acronyms in there as well. So if during the normal work day, somebody were just listening over our shoulders, it might be difficult to understand.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of acronyms. So that first one, you're you're there for just short of 200 days, right?
0: Yeah, 199 plus something. (laughs) So we were curious,
1: I mean, is it ordinary to always have a physician on the space station? Uh, is there always medical personnel there and, and what was, what was your official duty? I mean, I assume research is a big part of it too.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. You know, when we were in the early days of defining the requirements for space station freedom and for the international space station, the medical community made a recommendation that anytime you had a crew of six or more, there would be a position amongst them always. And everybody agreed to that until the astronaut office said, Hey, wait, that means one in six astronauts has to be doctors. You got to be kidding. So they decided, yeah, I don't think we can do that. Uh, but as it turns out, uh, about every other mission, almost uh, one and two, one and three to one and two missions has a physician on board because of the way we select. And for instance, right now, one of my good friends, Serena Anand, Chancellor, is up there and she, like me is internal medicine, aerospace combined. And uh, we have another physician in training right now, Dr. Drew Morgan on the U.S. side who will be going up within a year or so. Another physician from the uh, Canadian Space Agency, uh, David Saint-Jacques, is getting ready to fly. So there's just actually quite a few docs. and uh, if you are up there as a physician, you are by default the crew medical officer. Now, when we don't have a doc, we always have two crew medical officers that we train to a near paramedic level. So we'll skip OB problems and pediatric problems and whatnot, but we'll get people familiar with. Uh, first trauma response, even intubation, airway handling. We have a small transport ventilator. Um, we have a uh, automated defibrillator. We have a round of ACLS drugs and whatnot. So we tailor it to our little patient population. But um, we we always have a designated crew medical officer and a helper in case the main CMO is the one who goes down. Uh, but just to emphasize, it's we're a long way from from Dr. McCoy. You know, Dr. McCoy <laughs> had nothing else to do but be the medical officer. And uh, when you're a crew of six, that's very much a a side deal that you have. And mostly, as you said, you're up there doing research. And for me, I had other jobs, spacewalk and robotics and whatnot. Uh, So it's very multitasked.
1: Well, uh, McCoy also had the tricorder, right? So um, I don't think there's anything that thing couldn't do. But we're working on (laughs) it. Which is
2: coming, exactly.
1: Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. And and you already answered part of this question. But we were thinking back to one of our earlier guests here, Gavin Francis, and he is a uh, Scottish physician who was stationed at the research base, the British research base in Antarctica. And he talked a lot about having half the year where not even an aircraft can get in. So he's completely isolated. He's the only doctor there. So give us an idea of what else is available equipment wise. And then based off of the years and years of experience we've had so far, what do you most likely expect to encounter up there with sickness, pathology, and um, what, what's realistic to have to address?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And by the way, we actually keep fairly close ties with the Antarctic medical community because it's such a good analog to us. We look at their experience base. We get an idea based on who they select, what are the background medical issues that happen, whether they're you know background disease that got through screening or occupational and how those might be similar to ours. And we also send our residents in the uh, space medicine residency program down here in Houston to Antarctica on rotations. Wow. So that. that it's actually though. quite valuable. Uh, however, as, as you mentioned, uh, for those guys, the isolation is is very profound, and for much of the year, aircraft evacuation would be extremely difficult. And so they rely on a level of medical autonomy that is quite a bit beyond ours. Not the least of which reason is they have a much larger population. Now, for us, we're a rocket right away, uh, and we're actually not that far. People think of outer space as very distant, but you know we're only about 240 nautical miles above the Earth. What makes us remote is that 17,500 mile orbital velocity that we're going, and so you know to get up there you have to go that fast, and to get home you have to slow down that much, and so it's hazardous either direction. Uh, so it is possible for us to evacuate and be on the ground literally within 24 hours. We can do that, um, but it's probably the hairiest, most formidable ambulance ride you could possibly imagine. (laughs) And uh, it is definitely not made for the the comfort uh, and safety of a patient. It's made to survive launch uh, launch and and reentry and landing. So we don't want to do that if we don't have to. So because of that, we strike the best balance we can based on what we know of risk and the population we have. And um, we try to think about what we would want to return immediately or what we could stand up there and take care of for a certain amount of time and stabilize before we would attempt a an evacuation. So um, with that, uh, again, we have a transport ventilator, one round of um, ACLS drugs. We, we can do chest tubes. Uh, we can defibrillate. Now, we've got a basically healthy population. In a somewhat unhealthy place. You know, so, we don't expect a high incidence of coronary disease or various other things. Um, but uh, we do have some particular hazards that, that we always want to prepare for. And so, toxic release, uh, when you're in zero gravity, nothing's going to settle out. And we do have some toxic nasties that are just part and parcel of spaceflight. So, that includes anhydrous ammonia as a coolant. And uh, powdered lithium hydroxide, which we use for scrubbing carbon dioxide, laboratory reagents and things like that. Mm. So those could actually cause some formidable injuries. Uh, we worry about decompression sickness because our spacewalks are associated with decompressing from sea level to about 4.3 pounds per square inch. So it's the equivalent of going from sea level to 30,000 foot altitude, which we do very carefully with oxygen, pre-breathe and stage decompressions, whatnot. But still, that that is a risk for us. Uh, and then fires, um, so, and potentially trauma if a pressure vessel explodes, and we have plenty of those up there as well. Now, those all sound pretty dire. That is definitely not our common uh, fodder in the practice of aerospace medicine. It's much more mundane than that. We have um, a very unique, but for the most part, manageable set of sickness and adaptation, uh, carbon dioxide, headaches, and uh, various other things, and of course, this vision intracranial pressure entity that that we've been studying for the last few years. Foreign bodies in the eye are very common, as, as you might imagine. No dust settles out, and you could be flying through the modules, and uh, because your focus is never 18 inches in front of you, things fly into the eye pretty frequently, and wow. so everybody is taught to do fluorescein stains and uh, removing foreign bodies. So uh, for instance, those are the kinds of things that we see. Sleep disorders, uh, you know, the, that's space medicine right there.
1: But as yet, I mean, I think one of the Apollo astronauts said uh, arrhythmia, and I think there's been some gastrointestinal things, but that's about it right, so far, right?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, we've definitely had a few things, um, but most of them come from that subset I told you. And and uh, we indeed have seen some arrhythmias, but uh, the most comprehensive study, which is a, a study in press that uh, Ben Levine is the, the PI on, should be out in the next uh, few months, but did a very comprehensive study. And uh, you, you basically see dys- dysrhythmias in a similar incidence to a ground population. There's really nothing scary there. And um, the same is true of, of a lot of the big changes that happen. They seem to be much more adaptive than pathological. And uh, people perform... And do pretty well. And uh, once they readapt after the return to Earth, they do pretty well. So um, most of the problems we see have been very manageable. And some of the things that used to scare us no longer scare us because we found out that they're just primarily adaptive.
2: All right.
1: Definitely want to talk about the EVAs. I mean, this is just incredible. You've done two of them, right?
0: Yeah, which is uh, low compared to a lot of the guys in my office. Well,
1: tell us about this because... To me, this is as close as you can get to being in space. I mean, the, being on the ISS isn't good enough. I mean, this is just amazing. And you said that you're pressurized at about 30,000 feet. Is that in the ISS or in the um, the spacesuit?
0: Well, in the spacesuit. Now, uh, uh, disclaimer here, my EVAs were actually in a Russian spacesuit. Uh, I flew at a kind of a unique time when we transitioned from three to six crew members. And because of the distribution of duties, I was mostly a Russian cosmonaut for the first six weeks or so. So I did a lot of work on the Russian side, and um, Gennady and I were fortunate enough to be the first to take out the new generation Russian spacesuit, which was the uh, Orlon MK at the time. And so uh, that suit is actually pressurized to a little bit higher pressure, 5.8 psi, and uh, that gives you a little bit more protection from decompression sickness but it's also a little harder to work in because the pressure differential between that 5.8 and zero when you get out the vacuum is a little bit uh, higher. So your, your fingers are just going to get inherently a little bit uh, stiffer and more sore. You have to work a little bit harder to do anything. Um, there's a few philosophical differences in, in how we do our suits, but, but the Orlon was awesome. Um, it was, uh, very easy to get into. It's self donning, meaning you can put it on all, all by your onesie, which uh, we couldn't do with ours. And, um, It's actually just a great suit to work in. Now, we we had a couple of glitches, which you do almost always with new hardware. Our CO2 sensors were were failed, and so we went out there with uh, readings that suggested a a horrifically high carbon dioxide level, but we were fine, and we were pretty sure it was a sensor bias. Um, But because of that, I had to have closed-channel communication with the medical group uh, pretty much uh, every hour, during that first spacewalk, which was kind of fun. I mean, it, it allowed me to, to kind of be a doctor out there even while I was doing EVA <laughs> and uh, kind of watch each other for carbon dioxide accumulation symptoms and still get our, our cables laid out and our antennas installed and whatnot. Um, uh, but it is interesting, you know, and your, your view from space is always breathtaking, especially that first one. But going out the door when there's nothing between you and, and that view of the Earth, but your very thin helmet in front of you, I mean, that that is a singular experience, and and I would say that's kind of the holy grail for most of us that fly in space, getting out the door and and doing a spacewalk and and being on the outside. It is it is this incredible mix of euphoria and terror and determination mm-hmm. to get your work done and and uh, caution that you don't screw anything up because everybody's watching. Oh, I bet,
1: and they were monitoring and your by vitals way, too, in, right?
0: You, Yeah. Anything you break is going to be really expensive. (laughs) I'm sorry. What were you asking? Well,
1: they're monitoring your vitals too, right? This whole time. Sure. Yeah. Yeah,
0: They're, they're monitoring your, the temperature of your uh, cooling water and the carbon dioxide, the oxygen, the uh, consumption rates, the metabolic uh, uh, levels and whatnot. So they're, they're looking at you pretty close. Yeah. They're
1: watching everything. So, yeah. So you weren't just going out there to take a look at the earth. I mean, you had something to do, right? So how long did it last and what were you doing?
0: Well, so that I was pretty short, actually. Um, we were anticipating a brand new Russian module to arrive, and uh, this was a new docking module that was going to come. And that radar system that allows the automated docking, that is classic of the Russian spacecraft, had not been installed in the docking port uh, where that was scheduled to to mate. So uh, Gennady and I, we had several duties, but the main one was to lay some cables from certain power outlets to the places where these new antennas were going to go, and then, indeed, to install these uh, radar antennas. Uh, And then we had a few science experiments, mostly that we were setting out there and then retrieving that had been out there uh, before. Um, We had a few issues, but for the most part, uh, everything worked pretty smoothly. And that was just about, uh, gosh, four and a half hours, which is short by our standards. One of the things that I uh, was tasked with doing was getting up on the end of the Russian robotic arm. It's, they have one also, but it's a very simple one. It's a telescoping arm. And uh, Gennady was going to winch me at the very top of that arm to get a bird's eye view of the station to take pictures of the cables that we had laid out and the antennas. So for me, that was a pretty unique thing. It's, it's a view that not too many astronauts get when you're actually above the station. And you get to see, I mean, the station itself is, is an incredible sight. And you get to see that, and uh, see the Earth underneath it, and just realize that you're screaming over the ground at uh, seventeen thousand plus miles an hour. Wow. I mean, literally, you're watching continents go by in the time that you're you're doing your task. And that that was definitely a, a time I'll never forget.
1: Yeah, I can't even imagine. I mean, well, this brings me up to something I was really curious about because I, I read a little bit about it in preparing, but. It's still, I uh, just can't quite get my head around this. I mean, it's it's the idea of, of uh, orbital debris. And yeah. I knew this stuff was out there. They call it space trash, but there's a lot of it. Uh, some it's big, and it's tracked by NASA. You guys even have a special team that does that. But then some it's very small, like a centimeter or, or smaller. And these are traveling at the same speed or even faster than you are. And, and that's a real risk when you're out there. And, and it's a risk to, risk to the space station and satellites and the rockets, everything. It, Tell us about that. I mean, one, how big a risk is it? And how do you manage that?
0: Well, it is a big risk. Uh, There's no question about it. Uh, On every emergency panel in the big modules on the space station, you'll find three buttons. One of them is called Delta P. Now, the other two are fire and then toxic atmosphere. But that Delta P means you got a hole in your spaceship. And most likely, that would come from hitting one of those pieces of orbital debris. And the relative velocities can be quite high. You know, we're trucking along at 17,000 miles an hour, and you could definitely get in the 20,000-mile-hour uh, closing velocity if something's in a, the right orbit. And so we do worry about it. We can't see anything smaller than an inch, and we can't track anything smaller than four inches. And so there's there's a large population of things that are big enough to really hurt us but small enough that that we can't see or avoid. Now, when you're in a spacesuit and you're out there, you're a pretty tiny target. We still have this thing we call the big sky concept, which which saves us. You know, it's the risk of being hit by orbital debris when you're out there in your little spacesuit for a few hours is is still pretty small. Um, However, as you're trucking around the station, you you see, especially the older elements have been hit by smaller things and they're peppered with little craters. And so that that makes you think. uh, No question about it. And I would have to say that the biggest orbital debris risk to a spacewalker isn't a direct hit so much as inadvertently slicing your glove on a sharp crater rim that uh, was induced by a particle hitting a metal handrail, for instance, that just raised this edge that that could cut through your your glove. And we know about some of these already. We actually have found a few of them and taped a few of them, but, but we're always looking out for those. Um, but you're really, your big risk is is being on the station and hitting something and, and having a depressurization event. And of those three big emergencies, I think that probably is our biggest risk. So, you know, we all practice the drill. If we get a hole in the spaceship, we figure out how to isolate it. Hopefully it's in a distant module from the center that we can just close the hatch and say goodbye to our toothbrush or whatever was in that module and uh, retreat back to a pressure refuge On a bad day, uh, the worst would be we'd have to get in our rescue vehicles, which in this case is the Soyuzes, and and punch off and come home. Uh, But we most definitely think about that.
1: Keith and I were just curious what a typical day looks like. Um, You know, to start with how much sleep you're getting and how sleep works aboard the space station. Are you guys on Moscow's time zone? Are you on Houston's somewhere else? And is there a five-day work week? Is there weekends? I mean, what what does the routine look like?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And, um, you know, we're on Greenwich Mean Time to start with because we have so many international partners that splits the difference the best. And so, uh, you know, there's big flight control centers in Houston, in Huntsville, Alabama, in Moscow, in, uh, in Munich, uh, and at uh, Scuba Space Center in Japan. You know, so all of these places have a lot of folks who are sitting there that have both monitoring and command capabilities to the station. So that really splits the difference the best for us. Uh, rack time, you're allowed nine hours of sleep. They block that off on your timeline. And um, I don't know anybody with the exception of one person who actually sleeps nine hours up there. <laughs> uh, and, and frankly, the same is true on the ground, even though most of us probably don't get anywhere near eight hours of sleep normally. Uh, for me, I can tell you that I went to bed at midnight every night and I got up at six every morning. And it was probably more regular sleep than I get on the ground. And that that worked out very nice. Now, as far as your day, that is timelined for you by very special groups and all those flight control centers who are working to optimize the the work day of of these people. I mean, when we're up there, we're like among the most valuable human workers in in history. And so
2: right.
0: you want to make sure that you know that your hourly cost is is uh, justified and efficient. And uh, we have this idiom that you know there's there's a red line that tells you what time it is. And then you've got all these blocks that tell you what you're supposed to do throughout the day. And you get up and you start chasing that red line. There's a lot of pressure to keep up for a couple of reasons. You know, number one, the work is valuable. Number two, you'll come to a block that'll say experiment, uh, you know, for instance, an earth observation, agricultural camera, you know, that that is the result of years and perhaps millions of dollars of research. And there's people in laboratories on the ground that are really counting on you to get this right. So really, the pressure to get this stuff correct is, is quite high. It's one of the more stressful things that you have to, to get over. And I contend you should never totally get over it. I mean, you, you really need to feel some butterflies to get this stuff right. And so when you're not on the clock, a lot of what you're doing is to get ready for when you are on the clock. So, you know, in the morning you're getting up and you're looking at notes from the ground and you're gathering the tools and the instruments that you need. You're reviewing your day. You're looking at the procedures that you're going to enact. You do a conference with the ground and um, you kind of sync up with your crewmates so that when it, time, when it comes time to start that workday, you you are off running.
1: Well, are you synced is- with everybody else? Is everybody else on the same schedule or, or is there overlap?
0: Well, there is one common schedule, and uh, certainly there are overlapping tasks. Um, Some things are timeline for one person, some for two, some even for three if they're really big ones. Uh, But you really need to be aware of what your crewmates are doing, and and sometimes you need to help each other, sometimes you need to stay out of each other's way. Uh, Your workday is punctuated by mandatory exercise, and so we have two and a half hours a day of scheduled exercise time, typically broken up into two spots so you do an hour and a half block which is heavy resistive exercise get that bone and muscle uh, preservation going and then the other is is cardiac and so there's a couple of bicycles and a couple of treadmills on board and then you have some scheduled meal time and then back to work and uh, the end of the workday means the end of those timeline blocks but it's not really the end of the workday you're doing cleanup you're gathering the tools that you used a lot of us will have taken Earth observation photos during the day, so you're downloading those. Uh, we would try to tag up with our crewmates. We ate dinner together every night. It was kind of a, a sacred promise we had, and, and for us that was just a great part of the mission. And then everybody went back to work. And, uh, you know, again, you're kind of looking at what you did and looking at what you're going to do the next morning, and there, there was not a lot of downtime. So, um, and I'll tell you that I, I actually took a suite of medical experiments that I wanted to do. And over that course of six and a half months, I maybe did 20%. And that was it, because there just wasn't that much free time.
1: Wow. So you're given some leeway to do your own experiments if it can fit in with the schedule, though. I, I...
0: You are. Um, we, we have a list of uh, non-mandatory tasks that we can do, and some of those are experiments. And, you know, frankly, if, if somebody has worked to develop the hardware that's up there, and you have a choice between doing your own stuff, and doing something that was, you know, provided by the community at great cost. Yeah, you know, you, your stuff takes second fiddle, on it and, and that's right. the way. It's. Right. So we waited until we burned down everything out of our job jar, uh, the task list, as we call it, uh, and a lot of that was Saturdays. You know, we we do what we called Saturday science, but that was basically doing extra science for the investigators, and that was tremendous fun in a way because it wasn't nearly as much pressure. Uh, and and our big tasks on Saturday were to to clean the station and to do some of those extra tasks, um, but but you were busy.
2: So so um, there are not um, if I'm hearing correctly, there, there are they're not uh, different shifts. So there's activities and stuff going on 24 hours. Is there is is there a nighttime on the space station where everyone basically is asleep, or you're just on a on a down shift, and then there's the daytime? Is that how it works?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And and because we've been debating that uh, quite a bit, we have decided to keep the crew on the same synchronized. Okay. So wake up time is the same. That helps us because it gives us a chance to to really see each other right. and to uh, tag up with the ground at the same time. Now, there are certain extraordinary science campaigns that may cause us to do dual shifts, uh, but right. we'd really like not to do that if if we don't have to. And so like on a submarine, submarine you know, we, we declare at night and we turn off the lights. And we declare at day and we turn on the lights. It gives you a feeling of power.
1: <laughs> right. There you go. Yeah, That's great. Now, are you doing regular physical checkups on your other crew members? Are there regular medical checkups on them, blood tests, anything?
0: So there's a quite an overlap between what we do for medical checkups and the, the science that we do that, that actually does some of the, uh, the medical monitoring for us as well. We have a very low-grade monthly sometimes bi-monthly medical checkup that the crew medical officer will conduct on on the crewmates but there's also a weekly conference a private medical conference between each crew member and their crew surgeon on the ground so that gives you a chance to check in they'll they'll be running a checklist you know how's sleep how's back pain how's countermeasures how's food how's diet uh how's all this stuff going and um, depending on how that goes you may not have to do too much from a physical exam standpoint, but they're also privy to the exercise data, the performance data on your counter measure. That's a pretty good index of, of how people are doing. And then um, the mandatory monitoring we do on everybody's eyes, which is visual acuity and ultrasound of the eye shape, uh, high resolution fundus imagery. And we're, we've added optical coherence tomography now to give us a really sensitive indicator of uh, how the syndrome might be progressing with us. So we kinda look at that and we look at the the overall metrics that go along with the timeline of adaptation for almost every system in the body. And you know, as long as we're keeping track of all those, uh, we don't have to do too much extra for a physical exam. Got it.
1: Mike, we're really close to the time here. Do you have a few moments for like two or three more questions and we'll wrap it up?
0: Sure. Let let me answer a question you haven't asked yet. Yes. So, you know, what happens to the body when you get in zero gravity? Right. <laughs> I was. I was. Uh, I'm sure that was See, yeah, so we have to be careful. I, I read so I, much I of this stuff and I that, uh, so. forget yeah. to ask yeah. the questions. <laughs> yeah, no worries. And, and partly because it's my passion and partly, you know, it's one of those things that we really want the medical community to know. Uh, right. You know, the, the human body, when it gets into weightlessness, undergoes this constellation of, of changes. Almost every system in the body changes and uh, that's what really defines this new adaptation physiology that we see in weightlessness. So, uh, you know, when you first get up there, an eight-and-a-half-minute rocket ride of acceleration, shake, rattle, and roll vibration, G-forces through your chest and whatnot, um, all of a sudden, the engine's cut off, and there's a very abrupt transition to weightlessness. And along with that, the, all the compressive forces on the tissues are abolished immediately, And the hydrostatic gradient that we're used to working against, you know, we change positions, we stand up, we lie down, and all of our baroreceptor responses are are tuned to keeping blood flow to our brain and various other tissues around those changes. Well, those are gone. The hydrostatic gradient is gone. Venous pressure is right atrial pressure everywhere in your body. And uh, along with that, there's these second order effects, which we just never anticipated were possible until we put people in space. So we find that there's a big fluid shift from the lower extremities. The capacitance vasculature and interstitial fluid moves up towards the chest and head, and there's a sensed volume overload. Mm -hmm. And uh, instead of a very well-ordered cardiorenal response, where you would normally see a saline diuresis, uh, that fluid uh, does leave your plasma volume, but it extravasates into the tissues. So you will decrease your plasma volume by about 10 to 15%. 12 to 15 percent. And in a compensatory fashion, you'll decrease your red blood cell mass by about 12 percent or so. So you normalize your Mm. hematocrit. And uh, that happens in a mechanism we never anticipated, which is a selective destruction of your newly minted red cells, this neocytolysis. Uh, So you can see bilirubin and mobilized iron and breakdown products. uh, And it's basically your body telling you, hey, I'm in this novel environment, here's what I need to optimize performance. So decreased plasma volume, decreased uh, RBC mass, uh, all that fluid goes into an extra vascular space. Uh, It turns out a lot of that is intracellular and your sodium and your fluid are stored there. We we didn't know that that would happen. Um, And interestingly, we would have expected central venous pressure to go up with that fluid shift to the chest. Well, it goes down. (laughs) So very (laughs) counterintuitive. And and we know that because we flew a, a physician astronaut with a right heart catheter, and we didn't believe it, so we did it uh, three more times or so. And, oh. and sure enough, I mean, we understand now why it happens, but it was very counterintuitive. And what mm-hmm. happens basically is a combination of uh, losing the compressive forces on the tissue so that the transmural pressure across the vascular wall is still high, but but the external pressure is so low that the central venous pressure goes down and your chest circularizes a bit. So there, there may be a component of decreased thoracic pressure mm-hmm. uh, that goes along with your abdominal girth getting uh, lesser. I mean, you, your waist shrinks a little bit, your chest gets a little bit bigger and you get a little taller because of spinal lengthening. Yeah. You know, So all these, and I'm, I'm leaving out so much, but, but this global change happens over time so that within a very few weeks up there, you, you are basically an extraterrestrial Uh, Your physiology and your anatomy and your set points are totally different, Uh, but that's what makes you a rock in zero gravity. And then you Mm -hmm. have to undo that all over again when you land.
2: Okay. Um, You know, as an orthopedist, I know there's a certain threshold for the bone loss that you just never replace. Um, And I think that there is concern among some of the astronauts that the uh, osteopenia or whatever is longer lasting. Um, do you think, uh, we're going to find a point like on the longer missions, hopefully, uh, presumably this is leading to years and years missions. Are we going to, um, find a point where we don't get reversal that people don't go back to normal physiology when they return to earth?
0: Yeah. And that is a really great question. And and you could ask yourself, do people really go back to totally normal physiology when they get back to earth? Uh, A very interesting phenomenon is that, um, When you fly someone uh, on a second flight, they adapt much more quickly. Mm. You know, I I left out the neurosensory changes except space motion sickness, but 3D spatial awareness and just becoming a three-dimensional creature from the standpoint of um, position awareness, locomotion, mass handling, all that seems to be retained, uh, and people tend to adapt physiologically quicker on their second flight. But having said all that, um, we have... A very good set of countermeasures up now there now, which has really revolutionized our ability to maintain muscle and bone. So the, the current set of physical countermeasures, which includes heavy resistive exercise, heavy axial loading, uh, means that we're in a very tiny single-digit percentage of bone loss, bone density loss in the postural Areas of interest to us over a six month mission. So, Mm -hmm. you know, somewhere between one and three percent from the trochanter, the femoral neck, the lumbar spine, the pelvis, the calcaneus. uh, And and those are fairly acceptable. Um, And the interesting thing is, after many, many years of this concern in spaceflight, we think we've mitigated bone and muscle to a large extent with these new countermeasures. Um, You know, so I'm pretty confident after six months of deep space cruise on your way to Mars, you're going to land. Fairly strong and fit. However, that has come simultaneous with our understanding of this neuroophthalmic syndrome, right. which is clearly driven by the changes of weightlessness, and and that actually becomes more your your limiter most likely. And um, you can't countermeasure yourself out of that one. You know you, you know getting uh, doing uh, pumping iron is not going to help you on this. You probably do need to restore some of that hydrostatic gradient. And there's a couple of ways to do that, but, uh, you know, those are the ways that we're just pioneering right now.
2: So going back to the whole preparation and the whole screening process, are there, there must be things on the 3T MRI uh, that will exclude people from flight uh, in anticipation of these neuroophthalmic problems. Um, have those been, uh, categorized properly? I mean, do you know what you're looking for to say, Oh no, you're highly at risk for this process happening, or is that still an evolution?
0: Uh, still an evolution, but okay. boy, you've nailed a lot of our discussion. No question about it. Now, you know, what we see is pretty unique. Um, it's, it, it's not like there's a lot of findings in a normally healthy fit person that predict this. That's not entirely true, but that question really comes into play more for somebody who wants to fly again. right? Uh, because some of this, some of the changes that we see kind of represent permanent remodeling. I'm, I'm a great case of that. I mean, my, my right eye is likely permanently squished and my right optic nerve uh, sheath is probably permanently distended. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, this has been going on since the beginning of space flight. We're just seeing it now. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we're in this strange position where we think we're in an acceptable operating band. We know that you know people have been flying for fifty five years or so. and the long-term complications that we worry about, like you know long-term vision changes after your spaceflight career, or white matter degeneration, uh, all these other things that we're concerned about, those are not hallmarks of of astronauts who retire or cosmonauts. Hmm. The Russians have a lot of uh, a lot of experience. And you know so you don't see these later in life. Astronauts still tend to outlive the the general population hmm. and, and seem to be fairly functional. And seem to retain their cognitive abilities although my, my wife might disagree with that but, uh, <laughs> but in general those changes aren't a hallmark of of people who've even flown multiple long duration missions so we have that on one side on the other side you can't ignore the very critical anatomy that's being affected by hmm. long periods and weightlessness so uh, there, there is a lot of discussion and a huge amount of our research is now focused on this issue uh, for the most part, those 3T MRIs we get are pre-flight baselines to track the the, the problem uh, as it materializes and, and uh, you know, to compare with the post-flight. Right.
1: And one other thing is radiation, right, Mike? I mean, the yeah. low Earth orbit of the ISS is still well within the Earth's magnetosphere. So you're offered some protection there. But the farther we get away from the Earth, the less protection we have. So a long duration, six-month flight, you could be exposed to significant cosmic radiation, right?
0: Well, that for sure. Uh, and you're absolutely right that we are still underneath the uh, the uh, magnetic fields. But just to put it in context, you know, the, uh, the recommended radiation exposure for a terrestrial population is still about one millisievert a year. And we get a half a millisievert per day on a normal mission. So, you know, we are way above uh, terrestrial exposure. And so we we might end up getting you know, I'm, I'm still kind of in the REM mode, but uh, um, maybe 10 to 14 Rems in a six-month mission, or uh, send a sieverts uh, if you if you like those units. So that that's a pretty significant percentage uh, of our annual dose. And you know, so even a, a Department of Energy or a, a Department of Defense nuclear worker never gets much more than a tiny fraction of one percent of their already increased limit. I mean, we're we're way up there comparatively. Uh, so we do worry about the risk of excess cancer, even with our low earth orbit missions. And that sometimes can limit uh, certain people, especially younger females and in, in the childbearing years. So once we get out of the uh, magnetic fields and we're in just a whole different ball game where that dose is multiplied by three, uh, from, from a standard uh, daily dose standpoint. So you might be getting 1.5 millisieverts or more, unless there's a solar flare and you might get quite a bit more. You know, so it is absolutely a potentially hostile radiation environment. But, but a couple of things, we don't really have a good understanding of how those radiation exposures map to actual cancer risk. We have a model, we have several models, um, and uh, there's quite a bit of dispersion there. There's no question about that. Uh, but the other thing is that uh, we now have another entity that, makes us want to minimize the time in zero gravity which is this neurothalmic syndrome and and you could almost say that if if you're flying so slow you're worried about radiation you're probably flying too long in weightlessness to to ensure um you're not going to get this neurothalmic syndrome so what it tells us is we sure like to fly faster so we we now have new incentives to develop advanced propulsion. Um, you know, like I say, I you know, I, I used to uh, be a program manager. I used to run the human research program for the agency. And the the irony was I, I was just about to look the program managers in the eye and say, look, we've solved bone and muscle. You you can land on Mars. You'll be healthy and fit. Um, however, I got this other problem. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I think that flying fast should, should not be out of the pocket. And uh, so we're working pretty hard on advanced propulsion techniques to try to get us out of deep space, uh, weightless cruises as, as quickly as we can.
1: Well, we're getting close to the time, so that that's a, that's a good place to uh, kind of finish it up here with a question I had. Keith, is there anything else you had by the way? No,
2: I'm, I'm very good. Thanks.
1: So Mike, I noticed that, you know, if we're talking about new technology and what's, what's ahead here in the future. Um, there was a space tourist up there when you were doing your uh, six months on the station, right? Two of them, two of them. So, yeah. You know, the only chances, you know, Keith and I have, I think at this point is, is maybe one day going up as tourists ourselves, give us an idea of how that, how that worked when you were there and your best prediction, you know, is that a possibility in the next 20 years? And, um, what are we going to do? You know, we, we still have to somehow replace the, the shuttle program. You know, what's coming up ahead? How does SpaceX and these other companies play, play a role in that? What are your thoughts?
0: Yeah, well, that's a great question. So uh, I launched with Charles Simonyi, who uh, was uh, one of the early Microsoft pioneers and uh, made his fortune developing the Microsoft Office suite of uh, applications. Um, brilliant guy. He's a Ph.D. computer scientist. He also was a type jet pilot and was on his second space flight. Uh, which is very interesting. So he paid an awful lot of money to do what I was actually getting paid for. But because he was really passionate about space, and really remarkable guy to fly with, uh, is actually a very good friend of mine. We've remained friends since then. And uh, I landed with Guy La Liberté, uh, also very wealthy but an artist. He founded Cirque du Soleil in hmm. Canada. So uh, unlike the previous, I believe six spaceflight tourists who'd actually made orbital flights. This was the first non-tech person. This guy, basically an artist, a very right-brained individual uh, who started as a street performer, a clown, a fire eater. Uh, and he saw things really differently than the rest of us. Uh, and because of that, he was able to communicate with people in a way that we couldn't. I mean, it was fascinating to fly with both of these guys and, and realize that, you know, that, that the future is pretty bright because we can do this. You know, the, the fact that um, really interesting, creative personalities are going to be able to do this, I think was, was kind of exemplified before us and you know me in particular being able to fly with these guys. So for, for me, that was one of the greatest parts of my first spaceflight experience. Now you were saying, could we be doing this in 20 years? I'd say you'll be doing this probably in two or three years. Um, you know, we, we have a chicken and egg thing going on that we would like to have other low-Earth orbit stations, but you need a vehicle to get there. Uh, So there are people who would like to build vehicles, but we're the only market right now, which is the International Space Station. Mm -hmm. If there was another station up there, I guarantee you there'd be more incentive for these guys to build new vehicles. So NASA has inserted itself in that equation by uh, basically contracting with two commercial entities to build vehicles that will take crews to low Earth orbit. Uh, It will help us because it will give us another way besides the Soyuz to get crews up and down. And by the way, that's the SpaceX Dragon and the Boeing Starliner. Uh, But it also incentivizes them to develop those vehicles and then in turn be available to service other platforms. And there are a couple in the wings that once these vehicles prove themselves, then it'll be worthwhile launching those into space. And of course, these can do free flights as well. So if SpaceX wanted to deliver a NASA crew on one launch and then just fly three tourists on the next launch to spend a week on, on the Dragon capsule, God bless them. You know, and the more human spaceflight, the better. Uh, so really nobody has a bigger stake in the success of SpaceX or, or Boeing, the Starliner or the Dragon than NASA does. You know, we're, we're funding them. We're providing expertise. And, uh, well, quite a few of them are ex us, you know, a lot of uh, former NASA people at these places. So we are actually a community, uh, in the human spaceflight world that, that actually works together every day fairly well. I won't say that we don't have our disagreements here and there, but, um, you know, it's it's a thriving effort that the public will benefit from, and these commercial opportunities, whether they're tourist flights or, say, a university wants to do science, well, that'll be within their grasp soon. They won't be dependent on a government agency. Amazing,
1: absolutely amazing. Well, Mike, as we wrap it up here, um, tell our listeners here, you know, there's so much out there. I mean, you can get lost in YouTube, like I did yesterday, looking at videos <laughs> of, the, of the space station, but. where would you point people to learn more about what we talked about today, especially the medical aspects of space and the research you're particularly interested in involved in at NASA?
0: So, you know, again, to me, uh, the the human in space is my passion. So the the places that I like to visit, the NASA Human Research Program, HRP, the Human Research Program has a website, which is fabulous. And uh, along with outlining all of the medical issues we have in, in spaceflight, there are peer-reviewed evidence books which are extremely well-referenced and, and they're very good resources for anybody who wants to learn more. Or if somebody is kind of interested in the medical specialty and would like to know how that intersects with spaceflight, for instance, cardiology, that's the place where you can find it. Uh, there is uh, certainly a couple of uh, textbooks out there. Uh, my textbook, Principles of Clinical Medicine for Spaceflight, do not buy the first edition. The second edition should be out uh, most likely in December of this year. I don't make a dime off of it, so I can shamelessly promote it, but uh, <laughs> that basically uh, gets all of our, our local experts here, the, those that practice space medicine, and, and gets their standard of care written down. There's another uh, great space uh, medicine textbook uh, by Nick Agosian and uh, J.D. Polk up at our NASA headquarters that's out there. And uh, don't um, overlook the international community. The European Space Agency has some great publications and also a great website out there. And uh, they, uh, you know, like like everything else that we do, uh, they think about things a little bit differently than we do. Uh, And it's very useful and valuable to kind of look at uh, what their research is showing them and how they interpret the findings.
1: Well, we'll get links to all of those up on the website in the show notes for everybody to look at more. And, Mike, thank you so much for taking out some time with us today. We've been really excited about doing this and you didn't disappoint. This is uh, just a really cool conversation. Thanks so much.
0: Well, my absolute pre- pleasure. Um, and let's see, you've got what well, So I'm not going to say anything unless you ask me for anything that you can't find. But I'm, I'm more than happy to send you stuff. But otherwise, it's uh, been really great to spend some time with you guys.
1: Thanks, Mike. And everybody, that's Thanks. Dr. Michael Barrett, NASA astronaut and physician. And uh, like we said, we'll gather more of this up online and wherever, whenever you listen to this. Take care. We'll see you here next time.
0: Thanks for joining us on Peer Spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at PeerSpectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at PeerSpectrum.com.